Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This is Reset. I'm Odette Youssef in for Sasha Ann Simons. There's some new data out that show a record 93,000 Americans died of a drug overdose in 2020 and that COVID-19 was the driving force. That's in part because the pandemic interrupted many of the programs across the country that addressed the opioid crisis. Cities, suburbs, rural areas, no community has been immune, though some have been hit harder than others. The common denominator is opioids, which account for three out of every four overdose deaths. In a moment, we'll hear from an ER doctor who's the chief of toxicology for Cook County Health. First, joining us to explain what factors are driving these deaths and what can be done about them is Sheila Vakaria. She's a social worker and deputy director of research and academic engagement for the Drug Policy Alliance. Sheila, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me today. So let's start with the numbers. What were the first impressions you had when you heard the record numbers that we've quoted earlier? I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking and tragic. You know, 93,000 people who died of overdose last year were friends, family members, neighbors, you know, loved ones. These are actual people and actual human lives that were lost to a crisis that we've been in now for over two decades. And the increase that we saw, you know, according to these new estimates from 2020, show that it went up almost 30 percent just from 2019 to 2020. So rather than this crisis ebbing or showing any signs of kind of alleviating, if anything, it is only intensified. Who is dying of opioid overdoses and where, where are they tending to live? So, you know, in the early days of how we talked about and framed this crisis, it was very much painted as a suburban slash rural issue. Uh, We were seeing prescription opioids involved in a lot of overdose deaths. And for a lot of communities, it was a bit of a shock because people were seeing white, rural and suburban folks dying of overdose. But as the 20 years of this crisis have passed on, we've seen the demographic shift, the geographics shift, and even just kind of like the regional trends shift. So rather than this being something that just started kind of around Appalachia, where a lot of the early stories emerged from, we are seeing overdose deaths rise dramatically across both sides of the Mississippi, but in urban centers as much as or more so than certain rural communities now, and communities of color, particularly Black and Latinx communities and Indigenous communities, in some places having actually higher rates of overdose deaths than white communities. What age cohort are we mostly talking about here? So whereas in the early days of the crisis, we were seeing kind of young adults in more and more communities now, we're actually seeing folks who are middle-aged upwards of even around 45 to 55 in certain cities, you know, as actually middle-aged folks and boomers are comprising a larger segment of folks who are dying of overdose. So pick that apart for me. I mean, your organization's been sounding the alarm on this uh, for a long time. But what do you make of, you know, the change that you just described there with, for example, age group and changing demographics and just the general increase? What factors have been playing into that? So one of the things that we know is that from the early days of this crisis, you know, we started sounding the alarm to increase access to evidence-based treatments such as 
buprenorphine and methadone, two medications that we know when someone has an opioid use disorder can actually help get them off of street opioids and reduce their likelihood of having a lethal overdose. And so that has been a core component of a lot of our messaging, including also making sure to get more access to naloxone or Narcan, as some people know, which is the opioid overdose reversal medication, the antidote. Other strategies that we're trying to also push forward are to actually reduce contact with the criminal justice system and the criminal legal system because we know that contact with the system and being incarcerated also increases overdose risk. And, you know, there's a variety of factors. We also need to make sure that people are getting access to sterile syringes if they're um, injecting. And so we've been trying a, a number of strategies and people are working tirelessly on the ground to ramp up these services, ramp up these supports. But one of the challenges that we consistently see is that these messages and this information and these treatments are still not being offered or being accessed by everyone equally. So we've been seeing racial disparities in who gets offered buprenorphine, um, also known as Suboxone, which isn't a well-known opioid treatment drug. We see huge racial disparities and oftentimes black and brown patients not being offered those medications, which we know work. We also know that some programs to expand access to naloxone have also not targeted adequately urban black and brown communities. And so whereas we might be seeing some stabilization of overdose rates among white communities, Part of the reason why we're seeing increases in black and brown communities is because we still need to do so much more to make sure that services are tailored and targeted to them and getting to them. So I do want to return in a moment to, um, you know, this point that you're making about sort of the issues around racial inequity and access. But I do want to sort of pick apart as well the role that COVID has played in this drastic increase in opioid overdoses. What has your research shown about how the pandemic has impacted the numbers? Sure, sure. Well, actually, what was really interesting was that about a few months ago, actually around December, the CDC released data that showed that overdose deaths actually had started increasing in the U.S. in the early months of 2020, even before the pandemic started, but that those increases only became more severe during the pandemic. And there's a number of factors that we can point to. You know, one is that these medications that I told you, buprenorphine and methadone, are ones that you need to come in and get a prescription for. With methadone, you have to come in every day to get dosed. And we know that people who were advised to stay home and shelter in place were not able to go out and access services. And we know that as we ramped up telehealth, right, the ability for folks to do Zoom visits with their doctors or phone calls with their doctors to get started on medications, there are still communities that don't have good access to smartphones or telephones or may who have, like, who may have other logistical barriers. So we know that treatment access became more challenging for folks already on those treatments, but then for folks who needed to start those treatments, they had a hard time getting connected. But we also know that, you know, loneliness, isolation, you know, job loss, sickness in the family, COVID in your family, all those kinds of stressors can really lead people to turn back to coping strategies that they've used in the past that may not always be healthiest. And so for some people, their drug or alcohol use may have increased or intensified as a strategy to cope. And we know things like that can also increase risk. Lastly, Another factor that doesn't get talked about enough is that the public health advice we gave for folks in light of COVID was isolate, you know, make sure to social distance, make sure that you're reducing your contact with other folks. But when it comes to opioid overdose, the biggest strategy that we promote as a public health intervention is don't use alone. Make sure someone's there to administer naloxone, make sure someone's there in case they need to call 911. And so 
the public health messaging for COVID in some ways completely contradicted what we know are the best practices for reducing overdose risk. So there were a number of these factors kind of at play. Sheila, you know, we've been watching, um, you know, real movement when it comes to decriminalizing marijuana use around the country. I'm wondering, you know, where does drug policy need to go in order to put a dent in opioid overdoses? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's an excellent question. One of the things that we know um, is that any time incarcerated increases the likelihood that you will overdose either inside or soon upon release exponentially because 99% of our jails and prisons do not offer drug treatments like buprenorphine or methadone to people who come inside who have opioid use disorders or addictions. So rather than getting connected to the support they need, oftentimes they're only inside long enough to detox pretty dramatically, then they return back to their challenging life circumstances and have to deal with reentry, and that can create lots of problems. You know, if we truly want to see drug use as a public health issue, you know, when someone is found in possession of a drug or has engaged in a crime that was likely to be something in support of their addiction or to fuel their addiction, you know, we should be able to say, you know, this person probably needs a case manager. This person probably needs to talk to a social worker. Maybe we need to connect them to a housing program or a treatment program or some other program rather than to, you know, lock them up and throw away the key. And so, you know, part of drug policy reform is saying if people really have a health issue, if we're going to see addiction as a health issue, then even if they have a point of contact with law enforcement, that should be a point for diversion and referral to services because getting someone locked up in the system only disconnects them from services, sets them back, and then potentially saddles them with a criminal record that can get in the way of them actually finding recovery after they get released. We know that, you know, having a criminal background gets in the way of finding housing, gets in the way of finding a good job, can affect your child custody case. And so, you know, when we saddle people who are struggling with drug problems with more and more criminal records, we're actually also creating barriers to facilitate a recovery where they can actually like lead a more full and whole life for themselves and their Mm -hmm. families. That's Sheila Vicaria, Deputy Director of Research and Academic Engagement for the Drug Policy Alliance. Thanks, Sheila. Thank you so much. Have a great day. For more on this, we turn to Dr. Stephen Axe. He's Chief of Toxicology at Cook County Health. He's also ER doctor at Stroger Hospital. Dr. Axe, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to get your reaction to the number that we've been discussing, 93,000 overdose deaths in 2020. Yeah, first, I'd like to start by saying I agree with everything that Sheila said. I thought she raised tremendous points. It's both heartbreaking and it should be stunning news to all of us that there was such a large spike. You know, unfortunately, my analytical brain does not really find it all that surprising because we have had an opioid epidemic that's been burning for many years right now. And then you throw a pandemic on top of that and you're removing such critical elements of the safety net that it's unfortunate not surprising to see such a dreadful outcome. So it's just devastating news, but not that surprising, unfortunately. So in the news lately, there have been a number of settlements by pharmaceutical companies. Could you help us review the history of these companies' role in the opioid crisis? You know, from a practitioner's perspective, what went wrong there? 
Yeah. So to go back, this is really now almost, you know, it's more than a decade old story where a number of the pharmaceutical companies um, really were promoting opioids as a panacea for all sorts of pain and, uh, and taking care of all kinds of problems. They also touted that these medications were not addictive. And, um, you know, really, we've found that to be just completely not true. You know, there's a common narrative that folks went to the doctor, they wound up being put on these medications for months and months, and then, you know, they were eventually cut off from these medications and some of them drifted into street drug use. You know, that is one narrative, but, you know, the story is a little bit different all over the country. You know, here in Cook County, for example, we've had a problem with street drugs for decades. And um, kind of what we've also seen on that side of it is that the street drug supply became infused with the synthetic opioids, fentanyl, prominently. And, you know, these drugs just became more dangerous than ever. So, you know, we've had two different stories, depending on where you are in the country. The pill problem, the prescription opioids, definitely has raged in certain parts of the country, whereas, you know, the, you know what we're seeing locally here has been an exacerbation of the street drug problem. Yeah. Do we have any understanding, Dr. Axe, about why there's been just more lacing of the drugs with fentanyl and other stronger substances like that? Yeah, at least the understanding is that synthetic opioids are much easier to produce than natural opioids. So heroin comes from the poppy plant, which has to be harvested and then it's distributed. It's much cheaper to make fentanyl in a laboratory. It's higher potency, easier to cut with other substances. And then that's been basically marketed, pushed down in the streets. So Basically, it's just an easier supply, easier to make, cheaper to make. I think that that's really what's driven much of this. And it's been contaminated, uh, the supply from kind of all routes of entry into the country. Dr. Axe, working in an emergency room, you've probably come across overdoses, um, and some of them may have been suicide cases. What's happening regarding mental health in our public hospital systems, and how is that interplaying with what you've been seeing with overdoses this past year? Yeah, you know, it's a complex web. You know, I almost view those as two separate problems. Uh, You know, I think that where we're experiencing with suicide attempts, that's been going on for many years. And then we also have the street drug use and we have folks coming with those overdoses. So we have um, kind of illicit drug overdoses, which would be more the opioids. And then people who are suffering from depression or are despondent, you know, they come in and take an overdose. Accessing the mental health system has always been challenging, and it continues to be very challenging. And, you know, as the pandemic um, raged on and we saw these folks in our emergency department, you know, that posed all these new challenges about making sure they were safe to go to psychiatric facilities, etc. So, you know, I almost consider them like they're intricately linked, but there's kind of multiple issues. The other issue is, You know, a lot of folks with psychiatric issues and depression um, also have a high rate of substance use, partly in an attempt to self-medicate. So I think all of our folks with mental illness issues, they need to get simultaneous attention for uh, any substance use disorder they're also suffering with. Do you have the resources that you need to be dealing with the increase that we're seeing? Um, I would say that, you know, that we could never have enough resources right now. Uh, You know, we can take care of every patient that comes to our doors. Is it in the optimal way? You know, I have to honestly say we definitely could do better. We need more beds. We need more facilities. We need more outpatient psychiatrists. 
this is the same story, though, all throughout our state and I think nationally. There's just an undersupply of psychiatric resources. You know, we're hearing a lot about, you know, federal outlay for infrastructure and economic investment. Do you believe there's an opportunity here that could um, help to solve this problem? Oh, absolutely. And you have to go back and ask yourself, you know, why do people wind up down the path for substance use disorder? Basically, it's either physical pain or some sort of psychic pain. Um, If we have adequate resources to take care of folks when they're suffering from these things, um, we could really head these things off much earlier. You know, insecure housing is a major problem. Um, Not having access to mental health. You know, as Sheila talked about, we need to have more linkages to warm handoffs so that we can get folks into appropriate programs. But, you know, and we also have to have people in the workforce, you know, have good mental health in general throughout society. So I think every way we can build up our infrastructure where people can live healthier, more productive lives, that's going to address the underlying problem with the opioid epidemic. So, you know, the pandemic isn't over. And with the Delta variant and possibly more variants to come, we could be heading into another difficult fall in winter. Just really briefly, I'd I'd like to hear your concerns and any message you might have for people who are struggling or who have loved ones who are struggling. Yeah. And I think as Sheila brought up earlier, you know, one of the biggest public health messages that we make is, you know, if you do have opioid use disorder, do not use alone. Um, That's just such a dangerous thing. And I do believe that that's driven these numbers up so high. It's really key to talk to family members and loved ones and to, you know, to go for care. There is help out there, but, you know, we want to see you in our health system and we would love to link you to care. So, you know, I would just be really careful if you have substance use disorder, if you have someone in your life that's suffering from this. And quite honestly, you know, most people know someone who's struggling. Just keep an eye on them and watch out for them and do what you can to get them into care. Dr. Stephen Axe is chief of toxicology at Cook County Health, and he's also an emergency room physician at John H. Stroger Jr. Hospital of Cook County. Dr. Axe, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And that's today's Reset. Want to hear more conversation around the stories that matter to you most? Make sure you're subscribed or tell your smart speaker to play WBEZ's Reset. I'm Odette Youssef. Thanks for making us a part of your day, and we'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.